started last week by talking about some famous last words. It's something uh, profound about someone's last thoughts and their last words, especially if they know that they're passing away and those will be their last words. Maybe that's something they've saved for some time to say um, because of the weightiness of, of last words. In a similar way, famous speeches, um, not necessarily last words, but historic speeches that somehow leave a mark on history uh, have always interested me. Speeches that, that leave a mark on, on our culture, our, our, our country, or on humanity in such a way that long after the individual giving the speech passes away, that, that, that those words still ring in our ears. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I bet, I bet some of them are so famous that even you could identify them this morning um, this is a point in our service where we don't often do this, but uh, it's called crowd participation, so I need your help this morning. Uh, don't leave me hanging, uh, church. If you, if you know it, go ahead and, go ahead and shout it out. Uh, who said these things, right? So this is an easy one. This is a softball to start with. Um, here's the, the statement, and you tell me who said it. Um, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would have I had told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Oh man, you guys are you guys are doing good this morning. Y'all are awake for the eight thirty service. Y'all make me proud to be your pastor. That was quick. Here's another one. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Y'all are good, two for two. One more. I have a dream. That my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Man, y'all are, y'all are sharp and on it this morning. Uh, famous speeches that leave a mark on our hearts in such a way that we pass those down to the next generation because the felt impact of those speeches were profound enough that we want that next generation to, to hear those words it becomes a part of the fabric of our, of our history. And this morning in the text of Joshua, we're going to see both of those things this morning. Famous last words uh, and a remarkable famous speech that would ring on in the ears of its hearers um, for, for years and years and years. And so we're reading it today because of how profound this final speech was from Joshua. Um, not, not least of which is because it's inspired by Scripture and from the very mouth of God. And so Joshua's been giving farewell addresses the last two weeks. In chapter 22, he charged the two and a half tribes before they went back across the Jordan River to settle the land east of the Jordan that the Lord had given to them. Last week in chapter 23, he charged the elders, the leadership of Israel, to continue in obedience to the Lord after he passes away. And this week, in the final chapter of Joshua, chapter 24, he gathers the entire nation, all the tribes, together before him, and he addresses them one final time before he dies. And this is Joshua's swan song. It's his final, final address. It's the last time he will address the people of Israel. And he pours his heart and soul into every word that's written here. And in his 100 plus years, as he's an elderly man now, he's experienced so much of God's goodness and faithfulness. And that is what he wants the people of Israel to hear. That's what he wants to leave with his people. Um, And so he addresses them this one final time. Now the setting of this scene is important. The speech takes place in the Valley of Shechem. And uh, you may hear that, and it, it may sound familiar to you, but you're not really sure why that's important. Why um, in our study of Joshua does that, does that have any significance? Uh, but we've been here before in the book of Joshua. You may not remember it, but we've been here before in the book of Joshua. In chapter 8, if you can go that far back in your memory, you'll remember that the people of God were, were celebrating God's faithfulness. They were celebrating God's protection and victory in battle. And they had this covenant renewal uh, before two mountains, right? Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And, uh, and in chapter 8, verse 34, it says that Joshua read every word of the book of the law, the word of God. And as he read, half of the tribe was in front of Mount Ebal. The other half of the, the tribe, uh, half of the, the nation of Israel was in front of Mount Gerizim. And as he read the word of the law, they would respond in affirmation, Amen, right? 
He would read a blessing from the law and they would respond, Amen. And then this side, would, they would, they, he would read a, a curse from the law and they would respond, Amen. And it was sort of this back and forth in affirmation of God's word, almost like a, like a pep rally at a school before a major sporting event, this chant and response type um, behavior with the word of God, with the Bible, and they're affirming their commitment, their covenant before God. And uh, this was taking place in front of Mount uh, Ebal, Mount Gerizim, but Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim form a valley, and that valley is Shechem. And that's where they're at in this account. That's where they're at. This is the scene of the, the, the last words of Joshua. And it's a beautiful valley. It's a fertile and, and rich valley, uh, one of the most fertile and rich valleys in all of the promised land. Additionally, this valley has further historical significance for Israel. 400 years before this event with Joshua, Abraham was called out of the land of Ur, and he came into Canaan, and he set up his tent right here in Shechem. Uh, He built an altar here in Shechem, and he worshiped the Lord. Uh, He heard the the final promises of the covenant of God right here in Shechem. And then his grandson, Jacob, came along years later, and he bought a parcel of land. And you know where that parcel of land was? In Shechem. And Jacob built an altar to God there. And at the command of God, Genesis chapter 35, his whole household brought their idols, their false gods, and all of their, their pagan worship paraphernalia. He, they brought it before Jacob and he buried it beneath an oak in Shechem. So this is an incredibly important place. It's a very dear place to all of Israel. And it's right smack in the heart of the promised land. And so when you hear it, maybe you're not struck by it, but this was an incredibly special place to them. It was a place where Abraham and Jacob and now all of Israel will, will, will renew and will vow and will make covenants before the Lord. A place where Joseph's bones would be buried. It's a place of commitment and, and renewal for Israel. And that's precisely what Joshua was going to emphasize in this speech. The idea of commitment and, and renewal of commitment to the Lord. So you see verse 1, if you will read with me in Joshua 24. Starting in verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. They gathered, gathered all the tribes. That's different from the last two weeks and, and because it's the entire nation, all of the peoples gathering, millions of peoples before Joshua. You can imagine the sight of that in the midst of this beautiful valley, all of the people of Israel gathered Notice also, though, even in verse 1, there's a measured weightiness here. There's a a heaviness even already in verse 1 in this passage, and it's signaled for us in in verse 1. It says that they presented themselves before God. Now that should strike you because in in verse 1, the same verse, it says that Joshua gathered all the tribes and they presented themselves before, and you would expect Joshua's name to come next. But no, Joshua gathered them, but they presented themselves before God himself. They knew this was not just some town hall meeting where they would discuss uh, the news of the day or the weather. There's a seriousness and a weightiness to this meeting. John Calvin said in the, in the 16th century, there's a sense in which the people of Israel understood that their assembly here in Shechem was before God and not merely God's servant. They knew that they were about to hear a word from, from Yahweh. And so Joshua is there. He's the mouthpiece being used from the Lord. He's 110 years old at this point. And though he's aged and likely feeble and frail, you can imagine how he roared in his final opportunity to get to, to give parting words to the people that he's been leading for all these years. Words delivered with emotion and conviction. There's four main parts of his speech. We're breaking apart Joshua's speech this morning. His sermon is my sermon. My sermon is what you see in the text of Scripture. He has four parts or points to his sermon. He reminds them of past things. He challenges them. He warns them about their commitment. And then he makes it official through a ceremony that we'll see in a moment. But let's continue reading and hear Joshua's final words to the people of Israel, starting in verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but uh, Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with, all, with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out 
Verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or bow. I gave you a land on which you have not labored, and cities that you have not built, and you dwell in them. And you eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. Here we see Joshua, the Lord himself, is reminding Israel of their past. Verses 2 through 13, Joshua's desire here is to provoke a renewed commitment to the Lord by reminding them of their history. And so he recounts the story. Again, he recounts the story, the history to them. And the logic is this. If you'll remember all that God has done for you, then this will be a weapon for you to fight against apostasy, to fight against idolatry in the years to come, in the days to come. When I'm gone, Joshua says, this will be a weapon for you. So remember your history. Remember what the Lord has done for you. This strategy is not uncommon to Joshua. If you remember back to chapter 4, they were commanded to take 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan River and to construct a monument, right? When they got into Gilgal, when they came through the river, to take those 12 stones and construct this monument. Why was that? Well, it's a tool for remembrance. So that when their kids and their grandkids are walking around in Gilgal and they see, hey, these, these 12 stones are strange. They look like they're arranged in a certain way. What's going on with those 12 stones? That they could tell the story again. This is what God's done for us. It was a tool of remembrance. It was a tool for for grace. The Lord would remind them again and again, this is how I've protected you and provided for you and brought you out of the land of Ur, one guy named Abraham, and now you're a nation. This is what Joshua's doing here. He's building a metaphorical monument in their minds, and he's using four stones, at least is is, is the way that that I'm breaking this down. You'll see the first stone in verses 2 through 4, the creation of Israel as a nation. God has done it, and God alone has done it, and he's done it through Abraham. And it was God that made you a nation. He's built you into a people. The second stone in verses 5 through 7, he talks about their captivity. Do you remember when you were slaves? Do you remember when your, your forefathers, when your fathers were in Egypt and they were held as captives? They were, they were slaves. They were just people that were serving a pagan Pharaoh. They were building his, his kingdom, and, and, and I brought you out of that. And now you're not slaves. You know who did it? God did it. You'd still be slaves if it were not for the grace of God. And then he adds a third stone, verses 8 through 11. And that's entrance into the promised land. Before they even cross the river Jordan, they, they move into the land of the Amorites. And, and God did that. He reminds them, remember Balak? You remember Balaam, that, that guy that tried to curse you, and, but he ended up blessing you? Again, who did that? God did that. He's putting stone upon top of stone in their memories, in their minds, making a memorial for their, for their past. The fourth stone, verses 11 through 13. Their movement across the Jordan and into the rest of the land. Crossing yet another river miraculously. The walls of Jericho, he reminds them. The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the the Girgashites, the Hivites. Then it says in, in, in verse 11, and I gave them into your hand. He's reminding them, I did this for you. Fruit and, and vineyards that you enjoy, but you didn't, you didn't labor to plant them. Cities that you dwell in, but you didn't build those cities. Who did it for you? God did it. He's building stone upon, on top of stone in their memories of their history. And, and the one thing that, that, that they should remember and that we should remember is that God did every bit of it. 21 times in these 12 verses, 21 times God uses the word I for himself. I did that. I did that. I did that. Later on in their history, the people of Israel would remember, I believe going back to Joshua 24, they would recall this, this, uh, um, this story and how God's done all of this in the Psalms, and they would sing it. Psalm chapter 44. Psalm chapter 44, verses 1 through 3. The people of Israel singing of this great truth. 
Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but you set them free. And listen to this part. For not by their own sword, that should sound familiar to us, did they win the land, nor by their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. They're singing the truths that had been handed down to them of their past, of their history, of all that God had done by his grace to make them a people and to preserve them as a people and to give them a land. And the logic here is simple. God did everything for you. He's done it all. And if God did everything, then that's the kind of God that you can commit your life to. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be in fear. If God has already done all of that, this is a God you can trust and commit your entire life to. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know this to be true. You've experienced this yourself. First and foremost, we believe uh, and we trust Christ because it's revealed to us in this book, in the Word of God. That's why we believe. That's why we trust. That's how we can know truth is through the Word of God. But even experientially, you know this to be true. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you can look back on your journey and see all of the ways that God has worked, how he's blessed you, how he's given to you, how he's poured out grace upon on grace in your life, and he's given everything to you. If you remember back to Joshua 12, that was a little while ago, but since we're remembering past sermons in Joshua, Joshua chapter 12, I didn't preach very long that day, um, but we had over 15 minutes of, of testimony on these screens of Poplar Spring church family members that were testifying to this, this truth, that God has done it, that he's been good. He's been good in dark and hard days, and he's been good in, 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 in days of success and triumph. God has done it all. And so believe it again this morning, church family. Believe it anew this morning that God has done everything for you. He's a God who can be trusted. He's a God you can give your life to. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect for you. It doesn't mean that you're never going to have problems. But this is a God who has worked in your past and is worthy of your trust in the present and in the future. And so you can give your life to him without reservation. This is what Joshua desired to emphasize to Israel in his very parting words, in his, in his last words to them as a nation. Oh, Israel, remember the goodness of God. And I would say the same to you this morning. Oh, Poplar Spring, remember the goodness of God. He's a, he's a faithful and good God who's given us all things in Christ. And so every person in this room, listen to me for just a second. I challenge you to, to do this. If you've never committed your life to Christ, if you've never trusted Christ, then think about what he's done for you. And if that will not bring you to commitment, then there's little else that will. Because in giving his son Jesus on the cross, God has accomplished everything for us in this world and in the next. So Israel, they've been listening at this point. And I can imagine they've, they've been leaning in and they've been clinging to his every word. You can imagine, right? That he's their leader. He's the one that's been faithfully leading them uh, for their entire lives for these people. He's their beloved leader. And, and, and this is his last address. And so they've been leaning in and listening to his words, clinging to every word. Their hearts have been warmed by what he said, by this reminder of their past. They've probably heard these things before, but, but this is Joshua's last time to speak, and he's reminding, it of, reminding us of it again. And so they're just clinging to it. And now that Joshua has their ear, he gives them the challenge. He unloads the challenge on them. I have to imagine that if he had the physical strength in this moment, this is probably where he stood up. He kind of stood up, even, even 110 years old, he stood up and he, and he cupped his hands around his mouth and he began to exhort them with raised voice as firmly and as boldly as his body would allow in, in, in that time. So the second, second part of his, his address to them, we start in verse 14. He says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what a powerful challenge to his people. It, it, this, 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 this idea, you can, you can imagine the logic here, right? Like if God has acted in the past in the ways that I've just described to you in that recitation of our history, if God has done those things, then the only logical thing for you to do is give your life completely to this God. And that's his challenge. If, if God has worked this way in history, then anything other than complete surrender is foolishness. It's irrational. Why would you do anything but surrender to this God if what I've just told you is true? 
And you think exactly what he's challenging them to do. He's challenging them to serve the Lord, to live faithfully for the Lord, to obey the Lord and put away idols. But if that doesn't seem right to you, if that seems evil to you is actually what he says, then choose who you will serve. Choose who you will serve. And, and Joshua couldn't, uh, couldn't stand the thought of lukewarmness here, of half-heartedness. Right? Charles Spurgeon said this, Joshua knew that the people who surrounded him, while seemingly serving Jehovah, were many of them secretly worshiping ancient idols of their ancestors. So Joshua, Joshua realizes this, that, that a lot of you are here, you've been following, you've been in, in this journey, you've been in this battle, but a lot of you went back to your original gods, to your, your ancestral idols. And so Joshua could not endure the, the, the double-mindedness. And so he urged them to determine to worship one or the other, to give, uh, to give them no option for half-heartedness. Spurgeon goes on. He says it's almost as if Joshua was anticipating the cry of Elijah. You remember the cry of Elijah that will come later. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. That, that was the words of, of Elijah. It's almost like, a, like, like Joshua is, 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 is echoing these, those words before they were ever even said. So what about you, friend? Can you admit, would you be willing to admit that often your life looks like that sort of half-heartedness? That it's so easy to worship the Lord in this room with these people on, on a Sunday morning. It's so easy to gather and sing these songs and, and, and your heart to be warmed by the gospel. But when you get out there... When you get out there and away from this place and these people, it's, it's different. It's hard. That oftentimes your, your worship and your service of the Lord, your obedience to the Lord is sort of like half-heartedness. Hear the challenge of Joshua today. Set your resolve. Who will you serve? Who will you worship? Jesus himself told us the same thing in the New Testament. That we can't serve two masters. It's impossible to do. We can't serve two masters. And so Joshua boldly, at 110 years old, proclaims this truth. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Pick one. Pick one. Who will you serve? But, but ask for me in my house. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. It's as if he's saying in this moment, I don't give a rip what you choose. I don't care if, if, if none of you go with me. If I'm the only one in this entire land of Canaan that chooses to go this route, I'm choosing to live for God. I'm going to live for him. Even at 110 years old, if I'm the outnumbered one, I'll stand against every one of you. I'm going to serve the Lord, even if no one else does. Does that put fire in your bones this morning to hear Joshua in the last days of his life saying, it's been worth every price we've paid. It's been worth every battle we've fought. And I don't care if none of you go, I'm going to serve the Lord. He's worthy of it. Notice something else here. He places an urgency on their decision. Look at verse 15. He says this, choose this day whom you'll serve. Choose this day. Don't tarry. Don't delay. Don't put it off. But choose today who you'll serve. Before you leave this place, when, in a minute when we finish the benediction and we play the, the tune to part with, you choose today who you're going to serve. You see, Joshua knew something. He understood something that we need to understand. That there's no such thing as indecision. It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. When it comes to the Lord, there is no such thing as indecision. There's no such thing as, I'll just table this decision. I'll, I'll wait and, and make up my mind at another time. At a later date, I'll decide what I believe about Jesus or following God. I don't have to decide now. It's it almost sort of answer you would give like the Dish Network people that follow you around Walmart. Hey, sir, can I ask you something? Who's your cable provider? Man, I'm not going to decide this today in Walmart. You know? And a lot of times that, that's how we want to think, or some people want to think that they can, they can treat God. Like, like, I can put this off. I can, I can be apathetic or indecisive in this moment about that. But there's no such thing as indecision when it comes to God. That's what Joshua knew. Because deciding, but, but by not deciding, you're actually making a decision and you're choosing not to follow God. You're not putting it off to later. What you're actually doing is saying, I don't trust you in this moment. I don't trust you right here. And so choose today who you'll serve. Because in reality, that's what you're doing anyways. Are you hearing this today, friend? That, that today you are making a choice concerning Jesus. Either you're surrendering your life to Jesus afresh and anew. Maybe even for the first time someone in this room would be surrendering their life to Jesus. Or you're saying, you're not good enough to deserve my trust. Keep trying, Jesus. Maybe another day I'll trust you, Jesus. But today I'm not trusting you. That's the only two options. Either you're surrendering to him. Or you're not. And this is what Joshua's reminding them of. Surrender today. Make your choice today. Who will you serve? So the point of this text, Joshua's really, really let them have it. He's, he's shown them their history. 
that it's a no-brainer based on their past, based on what God's done. It's a no-brainer to serve the Lord. It's the, act- it's the only logical um, option here based on what God's done is to serve the Lord. Then he shifts to second gear and he gives them this challenge. There can be no middle way. There's no third option. There's no bipartisanship. Who will you serve? Decide today. Is it God or is it these other idols? Is it the idols of your fathers or is it the new idols here in the land that were here when we came here? There's options, but you've got to choose one. And, 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 and what would be the result of this sermon, these two points to his sermon so far? Well, lo and behold, Joshua's speech is effective. That's what we see as we continue in the text. We see it's effective. Look at verse 16. It says, The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples and the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, man, what a response, right? Like, like, like if I were the one preaching that sermon that Joshua just preached and all of you responded in the way that the, the Israelites just responded to that sermon, I'd be over the moon, right? Like that's the goal. Like you, you preach the word of God, God gives his word, and, and, and the response from the people is, yeah, we, we want to surrender. That's the God. Who we, and they repeated, yeah, he's the one that's done this. He's brought us out of the land. He's brought us into this land and saved us from these people. And, and they surrender and they want to follow God. And so I'm like, amen, praise the Lord. That's the desired result. We want people who want to follow the Lord. But in fact, Joshua wasn't excited about it at all. He didn't like what Israel said in response. It was, it was too ready. It was too impulsive. It was, it, was, it was too nonchalant. And he knew their fickleness. He knew how quickly in the past they had turned away. And they had, they had been tossed to and fro by, by every, every little whim that came into their life. Even the, the lack of water or the type of food that they wanted. He knew how quickly they were to be turned away. And so he wasn't impressed with their response at all. John Calvin, again, in the 16th century, said, There's no doubt that Joshua's tongue was guided by the inspiration of the Spirit. For when the Lord brings men under his authority, they're usually willing enough to profess zeal for piety, though they instantly fall away from it. Thus, they build uh, build without a foundation. This happens because they neither distrust their own weakness so much as they ought, nor consider how difficult it is to bind themselves wholly to the Lord. There is need, therefore, of serious examination, lest we be carried aloft by some giddy movement and fall in our very first attempts. What's Calvin saying? It's this, that Joshua knew that they needed more than just sentimental, uh, emotional commitment. It had to be more than just, I got goosebumps and I responded, right? It had to be more than that. I mean, I mean some people, some people cry at the end of, of the movie Rudy, right? You know the movie, the football movie I'm talking about? The kid goes and plays for Notre Dame. That doesn't mean that every person that responds emotionally to that movie is ready to go sign a letter of intent and strap on pads and play for the University of Notre Dame. I mean, I don't even like Notre Dame, but that story moves me, right? In the same way, Joshua knew there had to be more here to their commitment than just an emotional response. Like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. And so he warns them. He gives them, in fact, uh, these two warnings. Look at verse 19. And then again, this is that, that third part of his of his speech, of his sermon to them. He's warning them about their commitment. Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is holy, and he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. We might be tempted to think, well, Joshua's getting old. He's kind of cranky here. He's getting a little senile or something. But lest we misunderstand what Joshua is saying, we must be careful here. He's not saying it's impossible to serve God. It's a futile thing. Don't even attempt to do it. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that it can't be done with some namby-pamby shallow resolve, some surface-level commitment that you make a decision in a moment and decide, yeah, I'm going to do that. That sounds good. He's not, Joshua is saying God is holy. Those who serve him must be holy. Do you realize what you're committing to? God is jealous. Do you realize what you're committing to? Not jealous in some petty or sinful way, but in a way that says, I love you. And because I love you and because I'm the greatest thing that you could set your love upon, I will not tolerate competition for my love. 
Do you understand the jealousy of God that he's not going to share you with your foreign idols? He's saying, count the cost. Before you talk the talk, before you jump up and sign the line, count the cost. This is not unlike Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus had been teaching, right? And a scribe runs up to him and, 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 and glibly says, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. You tell me where to go and I'll go with you. I'll go with you anywhere you go. And what does Jesus say in the response? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple runs up to him and says, Hey, Lord, uh, first let me go bury, bury my father. And Jesus says to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, Count the cost. Don't just jump on the bandwagon because your emotions have been stirred. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're committing to. Is this real for you? I have to imagine that what comes next in the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, with the Israelites had to make even old Joshua grin a little bit. Look at verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua isn't through. He says, I want you to be witnesses today to what you're saying. So verse 22, uh, he challenged them to be witnesses. Verse 22, he, they ring out, we are witnesses. Joshua challenges them again, verse 23, 23. Then put away your false gods. And the people respond again in verse 24, which we've already been doing some responsive reading in our service this morning. The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And so you, you see what's happening here, right? Joshua is swearing them in, right, as their own witnesses, Right? He's making them take the stand, and, and they're swearing themselves in as uh, their own witnesses to this renewed covenant. And if they fail to uphold it, if they go back to their false gods and their idols, then they condemn themselves. They've made this oath. And they hear the seriousness of this commitment. And they still say, we will serve the Lord. We hear you, Joshua. We know that God is holy. We know that he's just. We know that he's jealous and that he won't tolerate pagan idolatry. And we will still serve the Lord. You know what we can learn from this? You know what we can learn from this? Kent Hughes says in his commentary on the text here, you can never repel anyone from the gospel by telling them what the cost is. That if the Spirit of God is working in a man or woman's heart, you can never repel them from the gospel by telling them genuinely and truly what the cost is. That, that when, when, when you follow Jesus, it's going to take courage and it's going to take uh, counting the cost. It's going to take something from you. But you know why you can't repel people with this truth? Because on the, on the authority of God's word, I can tell you this morning that there, there is no other logical choice, no other logical way to live but than to give your life to Jesus. Is it going to cost you? Yes. Will it cost you dearly? Yes. Could it cost you everything? Possibly yes. But is it worth it? Absolutely yes. He is worth it. So count the cost. See that it could cost you a job or see that it could cost you family members or relationships or financially or it could cost you moving across the world and serving him in a foreign context where it could indeed cost your life. But even know that there it is absolutely worth it. Joshua is challenging them to the, to the genuineness of their commitment. Are you really believing? Do you really believe what you're saying here, people of Israel, that you're willing to, to give up everything? Maybe even family members that are still worshiping those other idols for this God. Are you willing to give up everything? He's challenging them to the genuineness of their commitment. And we need to ask the same question of ourselves this morning. Is the truth that I say I believe real to me? Is it genuine to me? Do I really believe it? Or is it just lip service? Is it just lip service? Because I, I got goosebumps one time when somebody played Amazing Grace and I, I went down an aisle and, and, and it was some half-hearted commitment where I've not been following the Lord. Is it genuine? Is it real? Is it the truth that I'm willing to bank my entire life and eternity on? Number four, the fourth part, of his, fourth part of his sermon or his speech was a ceremony to make this commitment official. If, if you're going to really mean it, Israel, if you're going to believe this, if you're going to really commit to serving the Lord and, and obeying his word, here's what comes next. And so, so remember the scene, right? Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and this beautiful valley in between with, with millions of Israelites gathered together, being challenged by their, their courageous, godly leader, Joshua. You have verse 25. And so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under uh, the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoke to us. 
that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And so Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. The Lord has another stone for, for Israel, right? If you remember in the, in the study of Joshua, we've already mentioned this morning, if you walk through Gilgal, you'll see 12 stones set up. And as you walk through Gilgal and you see those stones, remember, God is the one who led you across the River Jordan. He's the one that protected you in the midst of the river and brought you safely into the land. If you go to Jericho and, and to the ruins at Ai, in the city of Ai, you'll see large mounds of conquered cities, the large rubble of, of stone and rock that's been erected upon conquered kings that, that once ruled those cities. And when you see that, you are to remember that God is a God of judgment, that His holiness is no small matter. And if you, if you rebel and if you sin against the holy God, this is what happens to you. Judgment is real and, and it's coming. You go to Shechem, you see a large stone under a tree. And you remember when you see that stone, this is where we renewed our commitment, our covenant before the Lord. This is when we told him again that, yes, we're real about following you. Yes, we genuinely want you to be our God and us to be your people, and we want to obey your word. And so just like that, it was done. Joshua's mission had been accomplished. He had completed it. He had finished his race. And so it tells us in verse 29, After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance in Timnath Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and who had known all the work that the Lord had did for, that the Lord did for Israel. That's it. Joshua lived. He served the Lord faithfully. He gave his life to leading these people because that's what the call, the call that the Lord had put upon him, and he died a faithful man. And this is his message. If you were here with us today, I believe if Joshua were able to, to be with us today, and you're asking, Joshua, what's your word for us? Poplar Spring Baptist Church, what's your word for us in, in 2019? What would, you, what would you tell us? What would you encourage us with? I believe he would tell you the same thing he told them on this day. Choose you this day whom you will serve, and don't look back. Choose you this day whom you will serve and don't look back. He is totally worth it. He's worth total abandon. Serve this God today. Set your resolve and by the help of his spirit, don't look back. He's worth it. He's worth everything. Why? I think Joshua would remind us. Yes, my name is Joshua. And remember his name means Yahweh is our salvation. But I think he'd be quick to tell us there's one who came after me. There's one who came after me and we shared a name. Yeshua. His name was, was Jesus, was the true and better Joshua. And I don't hold a candle to what this Joshua did. He is truly Yahweh's salvation. He is the true and better Joshua. And, and, and I didn't come close to doing what he accomplished. He died for your sins. And, and if you'll give your life to him, our Messiah, our Savior, and he will, he will lead you into the true promised land where there will be no temptation of sin, there will be no power of sin, no presence of sin, he'll accomplish what I could not accomplish because he is the Messiah. He's the one that you give your life to. I think that's what he would want us to know. I think that's what he would challenge us to do. Choose you this day whom you will serve, but let me tell you, Jesus is the one that you should serve. He's worth it. And so let me address two different groups this morning as we close. If there's anyone in this room this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you've never chosen to follow Jesus, and never decided to follow you've never given your life to him, that God gave his son to die for you, that the true and better Joshua, the Yahweh, is salvation. He came and gave his life to you. There's no better decision you could make today than to give your life to him. Not in, in, some, in some quick, fickle, uh, emotional response, but to say, you you're my God and I will serve you. And I'm trusting in your death on the cross, Jesus, for my salvation. Make that decision today. It's the best decision you could make. There's another group of people here, though, possibly. On, on the other hand, that, that there are some here that have chosen to follow Jesus. You've given your life to Christ. You've repented of your sins. You've trusted in him. But you would say this morning, there's some areas of my life I've been holding back in. There's some areas of my life where, where I've been being pushed by the Spirit and the Word of God has been challenging me, but I've been holding on to it, either whether it's a sin issue or it's just a, a calling issue or it's something that God's called you to do. I'm not totally committed. I know the Lord. I've experienced his grace, but I'm not sold out for him. That it's a lot of lip service, that I say a lot of the right things, but I've not given myself wholly to this God. I'm done playing games. I'm setting my resolve today and no looking back. He's worth it. 
Make that decision today. You'll never regret that decision. That's the greatest decision in all the world. And maybe you're here today because you've made that commitment, but you've never made it public. That's that's a reality for some of us in this room, that we've trusted Jesus, we've asked him to save us from our sins, but we've never announced it to the people around us. You need to move through that process with baptism, saying to the world, yes, I've identified with this king. He's saved me from my sins. I've trusted his work on Calvary, but I want to be obedient to him today by going through baptism and announcing that to the world. This commitment that I've made, I'm making it official, right? I'm showing it to the world. I want this reminder. I want this accountability. I'm following the Lord. Make that decision today. Here's the reality. I'll make this promise to you. Michael, myself, we have other elders in this room, women in this room, that would love nothing more than to stick around after this service and walk you through those commitments. Just to say, here's the gospel. Here's how you become a follower of Jesus. Here's how you walk through baptism. Here's how you walk through a renewed commitment and a taking your family and saying, we're going to follow the Lord. Our house will follow the Lord. We'd love nothing more than to stick around and talk with you about that. And so we would, uh, we would invite you to do that. You can come now as we respond through singing. You can come now and grab my hand and say, let's talk. You can stick around after the service. But make that decision today. It's the greatest decision you'd ever make. Let's pray together.